Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. Uh, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to um, your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in in your own eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is God's word for God's people. people indeed. Would you pray with me? Thanks, brother. Father, we thank you for your word, for this yet another glorious Sunday, a Sunday to revel in your resurrection, to give thanks for your crucifixion, for your kindness, forgiveness, and generosity towards us. I just pray today, as the songs we were singing this morning reminded me of the church globally, that here and all around the world, Lord, there are your sons and daughters singing your praise this morning. I think upon the chorus that that would sound like from heaven, all the languages and instruments and voices. I pray, Lord, that that voice is one of unity, that it is a chorus in harmony. And I pray that that would be the same, Lord, for our churches here in the state, in the nation as well, in our network, Lord, and here in this room. Help us all as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. It's been a good morning so far. I'll tell you what, I was singing at the top of my lungs. This has just been a a great Lord's Day together, and we haven't even said anything. Maybe that's the reason why it's good so far. We could just keep the band up here and be done for the day. We might get out of here a little unscathed. I, uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Beck. I'm the pastoral resident here at The Crossing. We just hit our, for those of you that do know, we hit the halfway point. I'm halfway, baby. <laughs> I don't know what we're doing next, but I'm halfway to something. That's for sure. I want to thank you just to take this moment to say, man, thanks for praying for Lindsay and I as we've embarked on this journey. Just yesterday, we had an opportunity to go down to Denver with the rest of our churches in the network and participate in what we've called a church planting catalyst, which is just a group of like-minded people who want to see the expansion of God's kingdom grow through the planting of churches. I like hanging out with people that we like agree on the same passions, you know? And uh, yesterday, as I was down there, I was thinking of all of you, all of these wonderful people here that we've met and folks we would now call brothers and sisters, not only in the Lord, but in community. And we just want to say thanks for all that you've done for us. We are in the middle of a sermon that Jesus himself is preaching. Now, as a pastor, you always are like on the hunt for the perfect sermon. You know what I mean? It's like, I want to just knock this sermon out of the park. I usually end with like a solid single, you know? I don't have to worry very far or imagine about what a perfect sermon on this subject would be because we are quite literally sitting under it. Some of your Bibles have red and white letters, right? The red letters are the letters of Jesus. It's important for us to remember that all the words in your Bible are the letters of Jesus or the words of Jesus. 
But man, we are sitting under a sermon given by the Lord Himself. This is widely regarded as the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's helpful 2,000 years ago, and it's just, help, it's just as helpful today. Last week, we heard a sermon from Aaron talking about the portion of Jesus' sermon. This is in Luke chapter 6, starting in about verse 27, where he discusses that Jesus is bringing this new kingdom. That's the kind of emphasis of his sermon. And the other emphasis of the sermon is that this new kingdom will have citizens. What will those citizens behave like? Maybe you could summarize it like this. This sermon is Christianity 101. This is not the high call of the priest or the pastor. It is the call of every redeemed soul by the blood of the Lamb. And he does this thing that's so contrary and revolutionary in the time. He says that we are to love our enemies. You might define it like this, the law of love. Now this was revolutionary today. It was certainly revolutionary at the time. Think about just nature as you've witnessed on Discovery Channel or out in the wild. Nature in its sinful course in this fallen condition of this world is objectively beautiful and amazing, but it is brutal. It does not obey by the law of justice. In other words, you don't see good happening to the good animals and bad happening to the bad animals. There is good done and it is rewarded or returned with evil in our decayed state. And at the time, the religious leaders had only taken one more step past that evil for good um, position into this sense of morality. The idea then was this kind of distribution of justice, good for good and bad for bad. That is good today still. We want to be just and justice should be dissimulated properly. Sorry, my tongue broke for just a minute, but I got it back. Jesus comes on the scene and He's not talking about the law of nature nor the law of morality. He enters and He preaches that when evil is done to you, you will return it with love. And He summarizes the point of how His kingdom citizens will behave in verse 35. You might see it here. Pardon me, verse 36. This is kind of the bridge verse in your Bibles. It says this, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. The question that the people who were listening to the sermon, these followers of Jesus, as well as the people in the crowd that are kind of on the fence about Him, and the people in the back who certainly hate Him and reject Him already. The question is, how do we actually do that? And that's what we will discover in today's text. How do we actually live out the law of of love. When we get into verse 37, we see these famous words here. Let me turn to it. I'm in the book of Matthew. That's not even close. We see this, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. This is historically regarded as the most well understood or identified text in all of the Bible. The Berna Group, many years ago, did this massive study on the people who identified as non-Christians about what Scripture they would identify as actually in the Bible. This was number one. The most widely regarded 
passage and all of the text is what was sitting open in your lap this morning. But I would also argue that it is the most widely misunderstood text in all of the Bible. And our misunderstanding is most certainly sourced out of assumption. We assume that we know what's going on when we read these words. That was the assumption then. I think that's the assumption now. And you say, well, how, would you, how could you conclude that? We are a church full of Christians. I have been in, in elbow to elbow and arm to arm with many of you in life group and otherwise you're older than me. You've been saturated or as Aaron would say, marinated in the season of life for many years. You've read your Bible through and through. How can you say that I have made an assumption about this text or my position in my growth in faith? And I would say that's the position, that's the assumption that Jesus says everyone is making. You think you know what this text means. What if you're wrong? How dangerous is that? Or maybe you're sitting in this chair thinking, I've read these words many times before. I know what they mean. And I'm so excited because I brought my neighbor. And my neighbor needs to hear these words. It's so good that you're preaching this. Or I, I can't wait to get the recording. Susan at the office, she needs to hear this. If that thought's running through your mind at all, I want you to know I've been praying for you all week. And I just want you to know this. I have addressed this sermon to you. Specifically, when we make these assumptions, we fall into the same hole that that group Jesus was preaching to all those years ago was in. You see, back then, everybody was making an assumption as well. The followers of Jesus thought that they were poor and, and hungry because they were cursed by God and they were wrong in their assumption. The Pharisees thought they were blessed by God because they were rich and full and they were wrong in their assumption. We must devote ourselves not just to the reading of the Word, but to the hearing of it in the form of understanding. Can we just start this morning by that very simple premise? Is your heart prepared to hear? Or have you already made a conclusion about the text that sits in your lap? Would you, by the Spirit of God, open your ears and open your heart to what would be shared today and be praying that I would share not my own opinion, but that of the Word. Today I want you to consider three things. Number one, the text provides a principle. You'll see that in verse 36 or 37 and 38. Number two, there are two pictures that help inform that principle. And number three, there are three applications that we can draw from. We have one picture, pardon me, one principle, two pictures, and three applications. My wife loves alliteration, so yesterday in the car I was saying that I would call them papplications. So now you have three Ps. You're welcome. First, we'll move to the principle. You see that in Luke 6, 37 and 38. It says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Jesus goes on to say, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. You will be put, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is principally here making this contrast between four elements. You'll see them listed right in your Bible. The first is judgment, condemnation, forgiveness, 
and then giving, ultimately, or in other words, generosity. And if you study this text a little further, you'll find that it's not necessarily four individual items, it's more two groups. We have judgment and condemnations, things that we not ought to do. And then we have forgiveness and giving. And if you take just one step further, I believe that you will find these are not just buckets, but progressions. In other words, if you have a posture or a a mentality of judgment towards another person, it is a very easy and short step to move to condemnation. If you have a heart posture and position of forgiveness, namely, for the most part in your life, that's your mentality, it is an easy step to be generous. He's making this contrast to help inform a principle. Namely, the principle is this. That our posture should reflect our position in the kingdom. Our posture should reflect our position in the kingdom. But at first reading of this text, you're thinking, yeah, we're not supposed to judge. Isn't that how we've misused the Bible or others have misused the Bible towards you? Man, don't judge me. They always do this. You know, I, I don't like when my kids or my athletes, I, this is like the least favorite posture of any kid I've ever met. I, I, I don't, stop, put your hand down. That was a total rant. That's just how I feel about it. Don't judge me, man. Is that true of the rest of the Bible? In other words, does the rest of the Bible tell you that we are not allowed or it is sinful to make a judgment of another person? Answer, I'll just help you. No! Matthew 18 alone is riddled with this idea of judgment towards another. If uh, the person who disciples me, who I sit under, Aaron, has authority in my life, if he sees something in my life that is of my harm, it is sinful for him not to say something. Matthew 5.12, Paul says, you in the church, who am I to be an outsider judging you on the inside? Shouldn't you be judging one another in the tense of the church should be helping one another in this way? We are, of course, to judge. But we see this word, this very simple word with a broad definition, extremely narrowly. I say judge, and you think punitive. I say judge, and you have a picture of some guy in a black robe with a gavel sending you to jail. We judge pie contests. Not everything is punitive in the word judgment. We need to understand the text as it's written in the language by understanding the word. We make judgments every day, and it is not wrong that we do it. Judgment is basically this, discernment and decision-making. In fact, in the scriptures we're reading today, he tells us that we forgive. How on earth do you forgive somebody without making a judgment that it was wrong what they did? We must discern and decide all day long. What Jesus is referring to, rather, is a posture of judgmentalism. The technical term for this is something called censoriousness. Now, Matt made a really funny joke about how I knew what censoriousness was, and you don't, so now I'm judging, and... Just pretend I said something funny. The picture here is a definition of a self-righteous position that you take over another person. It is this spirit of harshness in your tone and your vision and your, sorry, your worldview towards another. I got to confess to you, um, last night about one in the morning, this text moved from academic to 
to personal for me. As I just, um, <clears throat> I reflected on the idea that I don't know if I could have done a worse job living out a passage of the Bible this week if I set out to do it. I've been harsh with my wife. Um, judgmental of the progression of my children. I've even had corrupt or darkened, hateful thoughts about some of you. I mean, you're just sitting in your bed and you're reading your Bible and you're getting ready to wear your nice shirt and stand up and proclaim the truth of God and you're saying, Lord, I am guilty. <laughs> we should probably get somebody else. We were already down in the depth chart anyway. If they got to me, it's like there's nobody left. <laughs> you have to preach this. Jesus is asking the citizens of the kingdom of heaven to treat others the way they have been treated by Christ Himself. Consider this. Did Jesus come in a spirit of judgmentalism or of forgiveness and grace? Did He come in order to this world that He would condemn you? Or has He come to offer an extending hand of forgiveness and generosity? In other words, he is making this claim that we should care for each other the way we've been cared for by Christ. When you are judgmental, you don't care for somebody like Christ. You try to become Him. Let me paint this picture for you. When I have a posture of judgmentalism, and I look at somebody performing an action, I don't know, um, Jack as an example, I observe something of Jack, a brother in the Lord, and what he did is objectively sinful or not sinful. It doesn't really matter. I, in my heart, make a judgment towards him. There's nothing wrong with that. We just mentioned it. But what censoriousness does, or judgmentalism does within the church body, is it moves a judgment of an action and lays it upon the person themselves. Now, what I do in that moment is I elevate myself, oh Lord, I elevate myself to a position that's higher in terms of righteousness than another. Or so I, that's how I perceive it. You see, it's me and God way up here. And all of you way down there. And from my perspective here, I can say, God, look at this. You see what Jack's doing? Eventually, that language will turn from what Jack is doing. Do you see who Jack is? And now we're not judging an action. We're judging a person. And how easy a step is it, now that we're at the seat of a judge, to look down at somebody and say, we have to make a ruling here. I have to put down judgment. And we condemn somebody. It is a wicked thing to act like a judge when you don't have the authority to be one. We don't have the authority to judge one another because we can't see each other's hearts. There is only one judge. Don't take my word for it. Maybe the best commentary ever written on the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain is widely regarded by people way smarter than me to be right in our New Testament. Many people believe that James chapter 4 is actually a reflection, a, a meditation on what the Sermon on the Mount was for James, the brother of Christ. And in James chapter 4, we read this. This is 4 verse 12, if you want to do that, move there. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against another brother judges his brother, speaks evil of the law, and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, are you not a doer of the law? You are now a judge of the law. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James has concluded this as he reflects his brother preaching. There is only one judge and you ain't him. He is a one who's earned the seat and it was quite expensive. That through the death on the cross and resistance from every temptation. You may be more righteous than another person in here, but you are not anywhere close to being as righteous as the judge. The best way to illustrate this is like, imagine if we all walked out into the parking lot, we drew a line in the sand and we, or in the parking lot, and we said, okay, we're going to have a rock throwing contest. Everybody throws the rock as far as they can. I would throw it farther than some of you, and some of you would throw it farther than some of me. And I think there's some ex-professional baseball player in here who's around 50 years old who thinks he's got one good long toss left in him right before his arm falls off. <laughs> he sets out and pew, he throws that rock farther than anybody, and his chest is out and his chin is high, and he's saying, well, what you did with your arm, let me show you. What you really have to do is you, you have to lean on your front leg and you know, let, your, let your elbow take the lever. You know, he's like explaining how he knows how he's supposed to throw farther. He's judging everybody else. And let's just assume that some official from the National Federation of Rock Throwing League of America very prestigious group, comes and says, well, here, I'm here to evaluate your, your judge throwing or your rock throwing according to the standard here. Let's measure these out. And, and, and one person here, a certain uni uh, University of New Mexico grad is kind of standing with his chin up. And the judge says, actually, all of you have failed the standard. Wouldn't this person run over and say, what do you mean I failed the standard? Look how much farther I threw that rock than everybody else. Are you kidding me? That wasn't amazing. I was like, at least... 25 yards. If you throw stuff, you think that that was funny. And the judge says, well, where did you stand? He said, oh, I stood right here. This is how I far through. He says, well, according from this mark, in order for you to meet the standard, you would have to throw the rock to Toronto. The standard of Christ is perfection. I might be more righteous than you, and you might be more righteous than me to some degree or another, but it is tiddlywinks in comparison to the standard. Is that a word, tiddlywinks? Does that make sense? Who are we to judge one another as we are all inherently sinful in our condition? Now, let's turn to the other side. The law, this position that we should be forgiving and generous. This is another passage that is widely misunderstood, namely due to the fact of a false doctrine in our world today called the prosperity gospel. It is a wicked teaching. It uses this text wrongfully, and it needs to be called out as such. Basically, the doctrine says something to the effect of, if you give money to the church, God is now obligated to give to you in some greater measure. And any understanding of church history at all would say that there have been people who have lived in poverty, who have been martyred, who've had nothing um, that would, of any standard that would say that they've been blessed on this earth, who are now in a royal <laughs> level of wealth in the kingdom of God. Our reward is not here on this earth. In fact, it is the mark of the faithful Christian that is joyous and forgiving and gracious regardless of their physical, social, or financial position. This text is not talking about money at all. In fact, it's talking about something much 
bigger than that. The posture that we inherit when we inherit the family business. If you've been adopted by the Son of God through the work on the cross and the resurrection out of the tomb, you are now given license to be a part of the kingdom of God. Not just a member of it, rather, but an actual son and daughter of the king through the work of adoption. And when you do so, you take on, as I would call it, the family business. In other words, we are to walk the way our father walks. Who has a similarity to their mother or father? People say, oh, you guys are so similar. With my parents, my dad specifically, it's like kind of weird. My mannerisms are like my dad. I walk like my dad. My body's starting to be shaped like my dad. What's interesting to note is that everything that's wonderful about my father, I have taken on. But also, everything that I can't stand about my father is also there. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. The principle here for being forgiving and giving is that we would realize in Christ that's what was given to us. Romans 2 tells us that it's the kindness of God that has led us to repentance. In other words, when I bow my knees before the Lord and I was saved in college right there on Plum Street, right outside of Parmalee Hall, I had blood on my head and there was snow falling. I was missing a shoe. It's a long story from another time. I'm praying to God and I'm saying, God, I trust you. You've been so patient with me. I know that now that you love me. In other words, what brought me to him was not his judgment towards me or the fear of that. That was part of it. But it was really that he hasn't judged me in that way. Instead, he judged his own son. Imagine taking that, like, yes, I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm so forgiven. I'm so praised. Now, I want to go out and make some Christians, so I'm going to put one in a headlock and say, if you don't repent, this is what will happen to you. The posture of our position in the kingdom is one of generosity and forgiveness, not one of judgment and condemnation. That's the posture we ought to take on. It plays itself out here. Think about the principle just from the FFH group. We have poor people who've made bad decisions, who might have had too many children or done something wrong legally and have struggled to get a job. And we could say all those things are true and I'm going to put my finger in your nose. Or we could preach the gospel to them and say, come, come on, come get a meal. Use our church as your home. Come play with our kids and, and let me hold your hand and let me help wash your clothes. Let me, let me love you the way I was loved. Isn't that a better story? He illustrates this principle with this picture of pressed down, shaken together. What he's doing here is talking about a marketplace in the ancient kingdom. There'd be like piles of people in sort of like a farmer's market, if that's where you put yourself in your mind's eye. And you'd walk up to a kiosk or to a booth here, and you'd ask for a bushel of something. If that person liked you and you'd been generous to that person, they would take that bag and they would stuff it in and shake it around and kind of wiggle it, maybe even put an extra dollop on the top and hand it to you and it would have great weight to it because of their perception of you. Now, if you were an uncharitable person, unkind maybe to their neighbor or to them, and you come and you're trying to buy whatever they're offering, they would take exactly the measure appropriated to you and give it to you. 
Maybe in a more contemporary text, we would talk about this in the realm of Slurpees. Summer's coming, and in my house, there is a delicacy known as a 7-Eleven Slurpee. There's a proper way to get a Slurpee. You put the cup under, you flip that nozzle, and you go and pay for it. You have overpaid, sister. Who am I kidding? Brother. The proper way is to put a lid on first, the lid on first, and you fill it about a quarter of the way up, and then you tamp it down, and you get all the air wiggled out, and you, and you really kind of press it in, and you fill it the rest of the way up. Give it a couple more taps. Then right at the top, you have to wait for it to expand. That's a tip a lot of people don't know. And then you put an extra little dollop on top, and you wipe it off like you're cleaning your cup, but really you're just getting a little extra. That is what it looks like to be pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And the Lord says, how you demonstrate to one another your position in the kingdom is the way you will measure, you will be measured in your reward in heaven. We are not talking about salvation in any way, shape, or form. We're talking about the measure of faith that we use in the time we've been given on this earth. Okay? This is a really helpful principle. It's illustrated by two pictures. We're going to move much faster now. In verse 39, he says this. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus pauses this teaching to kind of offer a parable. He does this a lot. It's a story that has a greater principle. And he asks two questions. Can the blind lead the blind? The answer, of course, is no. If the blind does lead the blind, will they surely fall into a pit? The answer is yes. And this picture helps illustrate the principle he's trying to play out. Namely, with the audience in the room. There are Pharisees in the room. And Jesus is making a job out of dividing himself from the Pharisees in that day and age. He is driving a wedge between them. They, go, they both come in the name of the Lord, but one is true and uh, the other is wicked and a lie. And he says, to the crowd, can the blind lead the blind? A teacher is greater than his student. What you need to know about the interpretation, that teacher is greater than his student. Back then, if you were a teacher of somebody, you were a teacher to them for life. It'd be like a coach today. Kid plays little league, goes to the majors. Years later, he sees his little league coach at the grocery store. What does he call him? Hey, coach. It stays that way forever. In other words, Jesus is saying, and to illustrate the point, that a, that a student will never become the teacher of the teacher in that context. And the teacher will never become the student of the student in that context. But the student will inherit the things of the teacher. And if your teacher is blind, you're going to be blind too. Like the parts about my dad that bother me that I have, Though he walked around through much of my childhood saying, do as I say, not as I do. Although if you had a mouth like my dad, you'd probably be saying, do as I do, not as I say. In other words, if you are believing someone who is blind, you will inevitably be blind too. And there is wickedness to teaching others when you think you can see and you're blind. You know why? it will lead to destruction for the lot of you. More concerning still is that the student will never become greater than the teacher, in other, in other words, his teacher, but he will eventually become the teacher of somebody else. And if he's blind, then we have more blindness 
and more blindness that leads to more blindness. He illustrates the second side of this by saying the Pharisees are inevitably going to fall into a pit. Maybe you could say it like this. More is caught, to borrow a term from my friend Daniel, than is ever taught. If you think, parents, that your Christian morality is good enough just by like, you know, reading a Bible and listening to a podcast and coming on Sunday and that that's the instruction to your young people, you are sorely mistaken. You are blind, if you will. He goes on to the second illustration in verse 41 and 42. Pardon me, the second picture, picture number two. Why do you see a speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is clearly a picture focused at the teacher in the first group. The blind teacher. Get, you're blind. You need, to get, you need to work on your sight before you go telling other people what to see. He's asking more questions. This is meant to be comical. You guys can probably identify the picture through Matt's teaching a few years ago, but if you're new here, you need to know that he's making this comparison of big things and small things. You got somebody who has a piece of sawdust in their eye. You know, a... a, a an eyelash. My wife takes eyelashes out of her eye more beautifully than anything that is ever. It's like this, like, I don't know. It's amazing. This tiny little speck. And he's saying that the person has a redwood growing out of their face. And he walks up to the person taking a wispy little eyelash out and is like, here, let me help you. It's meant to be comical, right? But it's actually quite severe as well. The Sermon on the Mount is making a, a, a position for the listener to either choose to follow blind people or to follow the only one who can see. I think a condition that we should be considered above as well. He's using this illustration to remind the listener that our spiritual focus should be on ourselves, not on everybody else. That if I consider sin and justice and things that need to be disseminated rightly, I must first consider myself. Now, this is a helpful principle, right? This person thinks that they're righteous and they have this desire to root sin out in the church. That's a good thing. Here would be my recommendation to you. Start with yourself. You'll have material to work with for the rest of your life. You'll be rooting out sin forevermore. And if it were, theoretically, you were to get to the position where you had rooted out all of the sin, then you are the perfect person to come and help another. You are the right person that we should come to, but we should work on ourselves first. Unfortunately, I see this comical position, this log and speck situation, in the church often. You know, we got to guy, let's say, who has this secret sin of pornography. And yet, he's judging another person that they aren't wearing the proper attire on a Sunday morning. Get the log out of your eye before we start talking about the shoe choice of another person in here. 
Let's take of the righteousness or the unrighteousness that we have in ourselves, take care of that first before we go rolling our eyes at another person in life group. There's not a person here who's an expert in righteousness. And that's good news when we consider the principle. Let me say it like this. In summary, Jesus' point is that we should demonstrate the love of the law of love as followers by imitating Christ. Christ did not come in the form of judgment or condemnation, but of forgiveness and generosity. And so should we do the same. And the way that we do it best is not by looking at our brothers and sisters' sin, but our own. Finally, we're going to go to three applications. Applications. Three applications. Something I want you to know, something I want you to confess, and something I want you to believe. First thing to know. We need to know that we are better at judging and condemning than we are at forgiving and giving. We have made a skillful art in the church today of getting around this verse in our own heart. We know that it's in here, and we say that we shouldn't judge people, and so what do we do it? We do. We wrap our judgmental posture in Christian bubble wrap. Language that sounds like, I don't want to gossip, but did you see that? Get that out of here. I can't judge a person's heart by what you say, so I'm not going to, but it would sound like that's judgmental, judgmentalism wrapped in Christianese. Do we see that language kind of premising or getting inside of the church in some way? James, again, thinking about this sermon most likely, speaks really well of this in James chapter 3, verse 2, when he's talking about the tongue has an innate ability to reveal what's in a man's heart. Now, I can't judge a man's heart even by what he says. Again, I'm not going to be judgmental or have a posture of judgmentalism towards this. This is for you and yourself. He says like a horse with a bit. This small little tool, if we control, if we control the bit, we can control the whole beast. And I, as a sinful beast to some degree or another, can be controlled by the controlling of my tongue. Alistair Begg has a great poem and it says something like this. It might be considerate. If all that we say in a single day with never a word left out were printed each night in clear black and white would prove strange reading, no doubt. And then just suppose our eyes we, we could close. We must read the record through then wouldn't we sigh and wouldn't we try a great deal less talking to do? And more than half think that many a kink would be smoother in life's tangled thread if all that we say in a single day were forever left unsaid. An application point for you to consider amongst many others as we deal with this posture of judgmentalism, is to first know that I'm way quicker to be judgmental and condemning than I am to be forgiving. And a way to help bend that is to be in control of our tongue in prayer and dependence on the Lord. The second thing, we must confess that we are all blind. Notice the sermon. Everybody's blind. The people that are listening are blind. 
The teacher is blind. The student is blind. You got a guy who's blind because of sawdust. You got a guy who's blind because of a redwood. Everybody's blind to one degree or another in the text. There is only one person that can see. And when you consider what happens when sawdust falls into your eye and you, you immediately stop, you know, you do this number. Everybody knows what this looks like. Universal sign for choking. Universal sign for there's something in my eye. Everything stops and we pick and we pull at it. And if we can't get water or get our finger to it or get to a mirror, what do we do? We run for help from another. I've got something in my eye. We do this number. Help me get it out. Some of us in here just have sawdust in our eyes. Some of us have redwoods in our eyes, but none of us are seeing clearly. We have blind spots and we need to go somewhere where somebody can see clearly. There is one who can see and he is the resurrected king. And the testimony of the Christian is not knowing how well we can see and being able to point out all that others can't. The testimony of the Christian is one who's continually running to the one who can see. I've got blindness in my heart. And at night when you reflect on the day's sins and you're praying through, we come back to this royal king and we say, I found more sawdust in my eye. I need more help. That seems like a much better testimony than running around and pointing out the sawdust and logs in each other's eyes. Finally, we must believe that Jesus heals the blind. Have you ever noticed how many blind people are in the Bible? There's like a lot. A lot of blind people. (laughs) You know, they didn't have glasses back then. You know, there was a lot, a lot of medical help. So if you got something in your eye, it could be a death sentence for you and for your job and your ability to make money. It's a serious deal. Jesus makes great work in illustration of healing the blind. My favorite account, if you've been here at all, you would know that my favorite account of this text is actually in Mark chapter 10. We can turn there here. I just want to read one passage to you about a guy by the name of Blind Bartimaeus. I call him Blind Bart. Blind Bart's blind. He calls out to the Lord. The Lord heals him as he draws near. And then we get to this text in verse 51. And the Lord said to him, what do you want me to do for you? He's blind at this point. The blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now here's the line I want you to grasp. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him all along the way. If we have sin in our life that's rooted out by the power of the Spirit of God, it is not appropriate for us to now stand in victory and lord it over others that are suffering in the same thing. When blind Bart sees victory, he finally can see the colors of the world and he's been cast out of his home. He can go home and say, Mom, I can work again. I can see. He doesn't do any of that. What instead is his response? He follows Jesus. And where's he going? To the cross. Our witness to the world and to one another has nothing to do with sharing that others are blind. It is to share a reflection of the text that is recorded in John 9 when another blind man who could see says, I don't know anything other than to say, I was blind and now I can see. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. 
how it is so kind to us. I pray, Lord, in in any way that I've fallen short, that You would not allow the ears in this room to hear condemnation. Instead, Lord, that we would hear about desperation. A desperate need for You. And that we can't obey the law of love. We have no hope aside from You. But the beautiful thing is, Lord, that You have already accomplished it on the cross and in us through Your Spirit. May it be surmised to say it like this, Lord, less of us and more of You in this place. In Jesus' name, Amen.